Okay, so here we are. We are going to finish chapter 32 today. It's not a long chapter, but it's a deep and involved chapter. And so it took us a few classes to cover the issues that this chapter discusses. And so right now we're at a, a very interesting juncture. We started off the chapter saying that if you're a person who has taken the meditation exercises or the spiritual exercises of the previous chapter seriously, that means that yes, we're born with an ego and yes, we're born with an animal consciousness. And that's what we pay attention to most because that's what's natural to us. But we have an essence that's much deeper than that. And that's our soul, our divine soul. If we learn to recenter the locus of our personality and take it away from ego and from animal and instead put it where it belongs at our essence, something amazing is going to happen. We already learned in the previous chapter before this one, chapter 31, that when you do that, you're in a space of joy. You're in a space of joy because when you live with the soul, then no matter how challenged you are by spiritual challenges on the account of the body, you're constantly engaged with freeing your divine soul from captivity, reuniting her with Hashem. And what a joy that is, that here she is, stuck in captivity, and she's once again free to become absorbed and united with him as she was before she came down here. So just living in the soul space, constantly having this agenda of, I'm freeing the soul from captivity, I'm uniting her with Hashem, then we're always happy. There's always something to be so happy about because there is no joy greater than living in a place where there's constant freedom from exile. Freedom from captivity is the greatest joy. This chapter started off saying, when you have that mindset, something amazing happens to you. So you reach joy, but you reach something else. Normally, there's a very difficult mitzvah, and that's the mitzvah of love your fellow as yourself. It seems like impossible to love another person like you love yourself. But when you live in the space of the soul, you start to realize that, first of all, you don't even know how great another person's soul is. That's what's important to you, your soul. That's what's important to you and somebody else, their soul. So for sure you're going to love them because his soul is greater in some way that you don't know. And if you go to the deepest place, really you're all one. So it's so easy to love the other person because truly you're one. And then the altar brought a challenge to himself last week saying that aren't there some people that you're supposed to hate? The Talmud says so explicitly. And he explained it's not just anybody that you're supposed to hate. It's a specific criteria that needs to be met. The person has to be your colleague in Torah study, in Mitzvah performance. He has to have been rebuked so he knows full well that what he's doing is against Hashem. And he nevertheless chooses to continue to go against Hashem. What does this say? This says real evil. Real evil? Well, what does King Shlomo say? King Shlomo says, Yeras Hashem Sneisra. The fear of God is to hate evil. If you love God, if you fear God, you're going to hate evil. So this guy is a person to be hated, but you're not let off the hook. There is no, doesn't mean that this person is now exempt from your mitzvah to love him. You have to hate him. And at the same time, you have to love him. Two mitzvahs with regard to the same guy. And that sounds pretty impossible. And that's what we're going to deal with right here in today's lesson. And I have a story that's not about love and hatred, but it's about love and discipline. And it's just poignant because when you're doing two very different motions to the same person, 
it becomes somewhat paradoxical. So Rabbi Manus Friedman has this great book. It's called Doesn't Anyone Blush Anymore? It's available on Chabad.org. You can read the whole book on Chabad.org. He wrote it years ago. It's very poignant. It's really good food for thought. Helps you find some sanity in such a crazy world. And he tells a story of a 15-year-old yeshiva student who was staying for some time at his teacher's house. For whatever reason, he was boarding at his house, an older man. And the teacher treated him with such hospitality. So the morning, the boy comes down for breakfast, and he wouldn't let anybody serve him but himself. And he would say, here, have some of this and try that. And isn't this delicious? And then at the end of the day, they're walking home from shul together. And he said, you know, you have to have some self-restraint. You're not an animal. You have to eat with proper self-control and control your appetite and choose wisely. And he said, I don't understand, but you're the one who told me to eat. And he said, I told you to eat, but you didn't have to eat. Okay. So the boy comes home. They finish what they need to do. He goes to bed. The next morning he comes down. And of course, who serves him? His teacher. And he says, oh, you must try this. It's homemade. And here's some jam. It's delicious. Okay. And then what do you know? They're walking home from show that night. And he said, where's your self-control? You need to be careful when you eat. And he said, I don't don't understand. He said, I'm telling you to eat because I'm your host, but you have to choose, you know, is this good for me? Is this proper self-care? Is this proper restraint? Is this how somebody who lives with Torah values chooses his menu? Okay. Now this happened a few times. And finally, the boy turns to his teacher and says, you are driving me crazy. What do you want? And he said, I don't want anything. In the morning, I'm your host. And it's my responsibility to take good care of you and see to all your needs. But I'm also your teacher and your spiritual guide. And I have to teach you how to act. So this was like, is this confusing or what? You're telling me to eat and then you're telling me not to eat. Yeah, it's a paradoxical relationship when you're taking on more than one role. So here is very different because this is a story of pure love just expressed in different motions. But here we're talking about somebody who's supposed to be really hated. And at the same time, he's supposed to be truly loved. Altrava said, Shtehan hain emes. Both of these are true. So how how are we going to reconcile this? So we're at the bottom of page seven. One may now be faced with the anomaly of a fellow Jew whom he must both love and hate. But what attitude should he adopt toward the person as a whole who possesses both these aspects of good and evil? When, for example, the sinner requests a favor of him, should his hatred dictate his response or his love? The Altarabbah goes on to say that one's relationship with the sinner as a whole should be guided by love. By arousing compassion for him, one restricts his own hatred so that it is directed solely at the evil within the sinner, not at the person himself. So in addition to the fact that he must be loved because of the hidden goodness that's within him, there's another motion that this person needs, and that is compassion. One must also arouse compassion on the divine soul of the sinner. For in the case of the wicked, it is an exile within the evil of the Sitra which dominates it. So here is something very interesting. Before, the Altar Rebbe said, you need to love him on the account of the divine spark 
Here he says, have compassion on him because of it. Aleha, before it was the Nitzites. So if you are familiar with Hebrew grammar, that would have been masculine language. And so he uses the term to refer to the Nitzots. But here he's using feminine language to speak about the nefesh kiss, the divine soul, the neshama. Here, this is what needs compassion because the spark never goes into exile. It never falls down. It is never lowered. But the soul, the divine soul, even though it doesn't act willingly, it is powering actions that are against its own self. It is in captivity and here to serve an enemy. And this really, really hurts. This really engenders compassion. You look at this person, you say, you know, if, if you have love, right? So you're loving just an aspect of them. But compassion doesn't just look at one part of the person. Compassion looks at the person as a whole. Here you see somebody who has a divine spark, literally a spark of divinity within them. And yet, what dominates? Their animal soul. Their ego. Their less better self, whatever you're going to call it. This animal soul is holding the divine soul captive. So yes, there's love, but that's only to one aspect of the person. But now look at, let's look at the person as a whole. Let's take in the full scope of this person. So this person has a divine spark to be loved. And they have real evil that needs to be hated. So what do we do when we see the full picture? We see somebody who needs mercy. Here is somebody whose goodness is being hidden and trapped. And that is a reason to feel so bad for them. So yes, let's say there should be hated. They deserve to be hated. But how are you going to act to them? At the end, you're going to act with love. And let's see how this works. What's the effect of the compassion? Compassion banishes hatred and arouses love. As is known from the verse, Jacob, who redeemed Abraham. So the Navi Yeshaya says, So said God to the house of Jacob, who redeemed Abraham. So commentators explain, you have to kind of reorder the verse in order to understand it. So says God, who redeemed Abraham to the house of Jacob. But if you read the verse simply, it says, so says God to the house of Jacob who redeemed Abraham. And the Talmud seems to take this literally and asks, Where do we find that Jacob redeemed Abraham? So this means that Jacob redeemed Abraham. How does Jacob redeem Abraham? So our three forefathers represent three prime emotions in serving God. Avraham, Abraham represents love, kindness. Yitzchak, his son, represents the opposite, severity, justice, awe. And Yitzchak's son, Yaakov, is the synthesis of both of them, and that's compassion. So what happens when love is inaccessible? When you need to love somebody, but you can't, 
You just can't access it. It seems locked away. It's too hard. Well, there's a way to redeem love. You know how you redeem love? Through compassion. It is Jacob, compassion that redeems Abraham, love. This is true with a fellow Jew. This is true also with God. This is a concept we're going to visit in chapter 45 about somebody who can't access love for God. Through having compassion on their soul, they can awaken the love that they already have. So here's a, a dilemma. There's somebody who needs to be loved. He also needs to be hated. We're having a hard time accessing the love. So what do we do? We use Jacob who redeems Abraham. We use compassion to unlock that love. There's a story of the great Hasidic master of Shmelka of Nicholsburg. This is a student of the Magad of Mezrich. And he was once asked, how can you love somebody who goes against God? Shouldn't he be hated? And he said, have mercy on the divine within him that is trapped within the klipa, the forces of evil. That's the way to love him. And that's this idea. You love him because you have compassion on him. If it's just, okay, you have to love him and you have to hate him. Okay, I, I love the good in him. I hate the bad in him. But how do we act towards him? How do we view him as a whole person? It's nice to say there are two different aspects, but they're in the same guy. Well, when we take the full picture into consideration, suddenly we're aroused with compassion. It's like this example that we gave before about a guy who's speaking to his friend and suddenly in the middle of a conversation, the friend turns into a cockroach or a rodent. I mean, the compassion, and that would be not even the word, would be enormous. Here's this human soul that's now vivifying an animal and does not have expression. But that's how it is with a divine soul. When a divine soul is trapped within a sinner, it is forced to act in a way that is so against himself, that is so loathsome and disgusting, worse than the cockroach and worse than the rodent. Doesn't that bring compassion? And when you have compassion then you have access to love. At that point, you have access to love and you start to feel love for this sinner who is supposed to be hated. Now, there's this really wild story in the Talmud, okay? The story is about Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi was Judah the prince. He was one of the most influential figures in Jewish history. The oral tradition was passed down from the giving of the Torah, teacher to student, throughout the generations. And it was not committed to writing. It was committed to writing by the teachers themselves in their own private notes. But this was not something that was published and disseminated. Now, this worked out fine until the closing era of the Second Temple, when the Romans were making harsh decrees against Judaism, against Torah, against teachers and students. And this threatened the oral tradition. 150 years after the destruction of the Second Temple, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi started to write down the Mishnah. He recorded the oral tradition, even though it was meant to be just handed out student, teacher to student, because this is how he preserved it forever, for all generations. So this is, we're talking about Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, okay? He himself is very illustrious. He comes from a line of princes. So he is a young student. And who is his fellow young student? His fellow young student is none other than Rabbi Elazar bar Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai. So this is the son of Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, who was with his father in a cave for 13 years. So you can imagine these two students, okay? Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Elazar bar Rabbi Shimon, 
They're sitting on the floor because they're the young students in the base medrash. And they're asking such sharp questions that the other students are like, they say, <laughs> we drink from their waters and they're sitting on the floor and they carry in benches because they want them to sit on benches. Okay, so time passes. Rabbi Elazar Shimon already passed away. Rabbi Hodzanasi is traveling and he goes through the town of his old colleague, Rabbi Elazar. And he asks, does this righteous man have a son? And they said, yes, he does. And they don't have good news to report. This son is very handsome and he's involved in extremely immoral behavior. So what does Rabbi Hodzanasi do? This, this is the grandson of Rashbi, the son of Rabbi Elazar. He takes the boy back with him to his town and he ordains him as a rabbi. And he puts him in the charge of his maternal uncle, Rabbi Shimon ben Rab Issi ben Laconia, so he can guide him and tutor him, mentor him. Now, the boy is not used to working hard and he's not used to having discipline and he's not used to anybody telling him what to do and he's used to just giving free will and free whim to his passion. And he turns to his uncle and he says, that's it, I'm leaving, I'm going back to my town. And his uncle looked at him and he said, you have been made wise and a golden cloak was spread over you and they call you rabbi and you say you want to go back home. And he said, you're right. I abandoned all thoughts of leaving. I'm staying here. And what happened to him was that he became a great sage and he ended up in the base medrash of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. And one day Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi hears a voice and he said, this voice sounds like Elazar Barab Shimon. And he said that they said, that's right. This is his son. And this is the son that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi saved by giving him smicha, rabbinic ordination, and putting him under the tutelage of his uncle. And about him, he applied the saying from Mishlei. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that is wise wins souls. The Talmud explains that with regard to the phrase, the fruit of the righteous, this is referring to Rabbi Yose, the son of Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, who was the son of somebody righteous, and he himself became a scholar. And when the verse states, and he that is wise wins souls, this refers to his uncle, Rabbi Shimon ben Issi ben Laconia, who successfully helped Rabbi Yossi reach his potential. So here is somebody who looked like he should be hated, right? Doesn't he know better? What kind of illustrious parents does he have? And yet he's choosing a depraved way. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi looks at this person and is aroused by strong compassion for him. And what does he do? Out of love, he puts him under the tutelage of his uncle and if, even gives him rabbinic ordination. Now, normally, that's not the way to bring somebody back to Judaism by giving them rabbinic ordination, but we're talking about somebody of the character of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi with incredible vision who knew what he was doing. But with compassion, he aroused love for this young man and look what became of him. So compassion redeems love. Now, before we move on to the next section, let's just, let's just sum up what we said until now. Okay, so we were just finishing up with the previous topic of there might be somebody that is deserving of hatred because he is a Torah scholar, he is practicing mitzvahs, 
He knows better because he's been rebuked and he's choosing again and again to go against Hashem. So that means there's real evil. So he needs to be hated. At the same time, though, he needs to be loved. So what's the way to deal with this person? Compassion. Compassion allows you to access love. And in this way, your general behavior towards this person is going to be guided with love. At the end of the day, you're going to feel his divine soul. You realize how we're all one and you'll wish that he'll be closer to Hashem. Now, to, the, to uh, complete this topic, the Alter Bernal brings a parenthetical note. This parenthetical note, the Rebbe explains, is really brought just to complete the topic because the main topic over here is joy allows you to reach the space where you can love a fellow Jew like you love yourself, any Jew, from the greatest to the smallest. But now it looks like there is an elite, or let's call them select group of people who don't get any love. All they get, all they get is consummate hatred. If we look at Tehillim, we look at the words of David HaMelech, he says some really strong words. So the Altar is now going to examine this and see. V'loi Amar, David HaMelech, Alav HaShalom, Tachlis Sinasinesim. As for the statement by King David, peace be upon him, I hate them with a consummate hatred, reserving no love for them whatsoever. So, when David HaMelech writes in Tehillim 139, he says, Those who hate you, God, I hate them. And then the next verse, he says, I hate them with a consummate hatred. And commentaries explain, I hate them so much, I cannot hate them anymore. That's how much I hate them. No hatred greater than this. Woo! That means there's no love, right? Consummate hatred. Who are these people that he hates with a consummate hatred? Is there anybody we're allowed to hate with a consummate hatred? So he didn't say this about any sinners. Who did he say them? Who did he say this about? Ella alhaminim epikorsim. This refers only to Jewish heretics and atheists. And why would we hate Jewish heretics and atheists? Don't they have a soul too? Yisrael, who have no part in the God of Israel. So what does this mean? The Talmud says explicitly, speaking about Yisrael, a Jewish person, even though he sinned, he is still called Yisrael. He's still called Israel. He's still Jewish. So if he's still Jewish, and that means that, let's say he was a heretic, let's say he was, was an atheist, and he comes back to Judaism, he doesn't undergo conversion. <laughs> he's Jewish. He's always been Jewish. He always had a Jewish soul. So if he always has a Jewish soul, then how could King David say he hates them with a the consummate hatred? And the altar explains they have no part in the God of Israel. What does that mean? They have renounced any overt connection to Hashem. They have come to a place where they say, they, they want nothing to do with God. They want nothing to do with Torah. And we're going to get to it because it's not that easy to be an Apikaris. Not just anybody can be an Apikaris. So what does it mean that they have no overt connection? It means why do we love another Jew? We love another Jew because essentially we're all one. It's just loving ourselves. We share this same common soul. Even this great sinner shares our soul. Now, a regular sinner, no matter how great, even if his soul is mostly obscured, there's going to be some, something of a glimmer of his soul that we can get in touch with, even if it's a weak signal, and we can still love them. Somebody like this, and we're going to describe who this is, has 
taken his soul into such obscurity that the signal is lost. We cannot love them because they have no as if part in the God of Israel. So who are these Minim and who are the Epikorsim? Let's look how the Rambam classifies them in Helchas Teshiva. Okay, five individuals are described as Minim. One, one who says there is no God nor ruler of the world. Two, one who accepts the concept of a ruler but maintains that there are two or more. Three, one who accepts that there is one master of the world, but maintains that he has a body or a form. Four, one who maintains that he, he was not the sole first being and creator of all existence. And five, one who serves a star, constellation, or other entity so that it will serve as an intermediary between him and the eternal Lord. So these five individuals who challenge the oneness of Hashem or all those special aspects that belong to Hashem, these are classified as minim, five different types of people. Now he classifies three different types of people who are considered to be apikorsa. One is one who denies the existence of prophecy and maintains that there is no knowledge communicated from God to the hearts of men. Two, one who disputes the prophecy of Moses, our teacher, Maisha Rabbeinu. And three, one who maintains that the creator is not aware of the deeds of men. So these three people who challenge the communication between God and men are considered to be apikorsim. Now, not just anybody can be an apikorsim. In order to be an apikorsim, you have to be raised with a Torah true education and having learned and studied and trained. And after all of that, the person of their own free volition goes and denies God and denies the Torah and denies prophecy they earn themselves a title of men and apikuras. And here's a great story of Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, who was born to fervent communist parents in 1937 in Jerusalem. And his father, who must have been a very interesting character, hired a tutor for him to teach him Talmud when he was a young boy. And he told the young Adin, he said, I want you to be an apikuras and not an amharetz. I want you to be a heretic and not an ignoramus. So he hired a teacher to teach him Torah so he can classify as a heretic because you can't be a heretic if you're not totally knowledgeable in Torah. Now, he wouldn't have classified just by the way. It's not enough to study Talmud. He had to have been raised as a Jewish person. And if he wasn't raised that way, he still couldn't have classified as an Afikoros. But let's see what the Rambam says about the children of these people who deny Hashem, how they are to be treated. So this is in Hilchas Mamrim, and the Rambam speaking about the children of the Kara'im. Those were people who denied the oral tradition, and they were very wicked people, and then they raised their children to follow their ways. How are we supposed to treat these children? The Rambam says like this, The children of these errant people and their grandchildren, whose parents led them away, and they were born among these Kerites and raised according to their conception, they are considered as children captured and raised by them. This is the famous term, Tinaik Shanishba, a child that was taken captive. Such a child may not be eager to follow the path of the mitzvot, for it is as, for it is as if he was compelled not to. By being raised against it, it was like he was forced not to keep the mitzvot. Even if later he hears that he is Jewish and he saw Jews and their faith, he is still considered as one who was compelled against observance, for he was raised according to their mistaken path. 
This applies to those who he mentioned who follow the erroneous K-right path of their ancestors. Therefore, the Rambam says, it is appropriate to motivate them to repent and draw them to the power of the Torah with words of peace. So we do understand that in order to be qualified as a min or an apikiris, a true heretic, is not easy. A person had to be very knowledgeable. They had to be raised in the Torah way and then choose to go against it. They could qualify as being a min and an apikiris. And the Rebbe says something very interesting. That even these people about whom David HaMelech said, Tachlis sinna sinesim, I hate them with the consummate hatred. Even they must be drawn back. And he calls to mind the words of Biruria, the illustrious wife of the great Rabbi Meir. What happened was, Rabbi Meir had neighbors that were hooligans and constantly disturbing him. And he decided that he was going to pray to Hashem for mercy that they die. And Biruria said to him, what are you thinking? Are you basing your line of thinking on the verse from Tehillim, Itamu chata'im min ha'aretz? Let chata'im cease from the land? And she said, it doesn't say sinners. It doesn't say chait'im. It says chata'im, sins. Chata'im v'lay chait'im. Let sins cease, but not sinners. And he took her advice, and instead of praying that they die, he prayed for them so that they should do teshuva, and they did teshuva. So that's one thing. Even somebody who is so low as to actually be a min and apikaris should be drawn in, should be allowed to get in touch with his soul. He always has a soul, no matter what. And second of all, the Rebbe points out that ideas of faith are in a person's heart. We have no way to really, really know what's going on in somebody's heart. A person might profess to be an atheist and a heretic, but in their heart of hearts, they believe. And so we need to judge them positively and assume that probably they are not really a minute apicurus. And I have a great story about that. My brother-in-law is a rabbi in Las Cruces, New Mexico, a Chabad Shliach there. And there was this guy that he used to reach out to to put tefillin on. He was very affluent and very influential and a very nice guy. And he would politely refuse every single time. And he would tell my brother-in-law, straightforward, he is a heretic. He is an atheist. He doesn't believe in Hashem. Okay. My brother-in-law would try you every once in a while, again and again. He kept in touch with him. He loved him. He's Jewish. He loves him, right? And one day he gets a call from him. He's in the hospital. He found out that he only has three weeks left to live and he wants my brother-in-law to come over right away. What does he want? He wants him to put tefillin on him. So he runs over to the hospital with his tefillin. They say Shema together. He puts his tefillin on. He told my brother-in-law that a priest walked into the room and he kicked him out and he said, that's when he realized he wants to die as a Jew. And then he said, you should know that all those years when he said he was an atheist, he nevertheless believed in Hashem. And he prayed to God every single day in his heart. So we never know what's going on in another person's heart. There's going to be somebody who says they're atheists and somebody who says they're a heretic. That's just defense mechanisms. They're, for whatever reason, this is what they're doing. Most people who don't act in the Torah way, even if they were raised in the Torah way and then they choose to leave it, it's not because it's an ideological opposition to Hashem. It's because this is what's easier this is what's more comfortable. This is what suits their passion better. This is what suits their lifestyle. Whatever it is, it's not about Hashem. Even somebody who supposedly needs to be hated because they were a Torah scholar and they were mitzvah observant and they were rebuked and they nevertheless went ahead. 
are just following their passions. They're not going against Hashem. The previous Rebbe said that in these generations, there's not really somebody who is ideologically opposed to Hashem. There are not enough people who are truly involved in philosophy to the extent that they understand. They don't understand. The Talmud, in this, in this tractate over here, where the Talmud speaks about David HaMelech saying, I hate them with the consummate hatred, clarifies that this is about Jewish heretics, and it wasn't about non-Jews. Because these Jewish heretics, Makirin v'Kaifrin, they were aware, they were recognizing Hashem, and yet they denied Him. And Rashi explains that these non-Jews, they're not Makirin v'Kaifrin. They do, are not aware and they deny. This is the way their fathers raised them. So if a non-Jewish person whose father raised him in a way of idol worship doesn't get consummate hatred because he didn't know better, most certainly somebody who wasn't raised in the way of Torah and mitzvahs doesn't get consummate hatred. He doesn't know better, and plus he has a divine soul. As is stated, As is stated in the Talmud, beginning of chapter 16 of Tractate Shabbat. And over there, the Talmud speaks about what's so bad about these minim is that Shematilin kina the eva v'sachoros ben Yisrael la'avihen shemayim. They impose hatred and jealousy and conflict between the Jewish people and their father in heaven. So these people are so bad because they know the truth and yet they try to impose conflict between Jewish people and Hashem. But now, let's look at this person who's supposed to be hated. Let's just say that he exists. He's somebody who was raised with Torah values. He's somebody who's brilliant, well-versed in the whole Torah. And yet he goes and denies Hashem. He makes an overt and blatant statement against God because he's ideologically opposed to him. He's somebody who deserves consummate hatred. But just because he deserves consummate hatred doesn't mean that we are qualified to hate. In order to hate another person, you have to be qualified. That means that there has to be no personal agenda whatsoever. The grandson of the Baal Hatanya, the third Chabad Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, has a sefer called Derech Mitzvah and he's among his many farm. And over there he speaks about people who supposedly hate for the sake of Hashem, but really it's because of their own corrupt nature and bad character. Don't say you're hating somebody for Hashem because you have some problems to work out within yourself. <laughs> in order to hate somebody, you have to have a very pure heart. Do you know the prayer that we say every day, the Amida? It's called Shimona Esrei. It's called Shimona Esrei. In Hebrew, that means 18. Why is it called 18? Because it is composed of 18 blessings. Well, go to your center and count. Guess how many blessings you're going to find? Not 18, but 19 blessings. There was another blessing that was added later on in Jewish history, and this is called Birchas Haminim. The blessing of the heretics. This was a blessing instituted in order to ask Hashem to punish these heretics who were causing a lot of problems to the Jewish people, literally endangering their lives and problems with the Romans and telling on them. They were a threat to the Jewish people, not just physically, but much more dangerously spiritually. They dressed exactly like any good Jew of the time, but their beliefs were very strange and they were against Hashem. And they were mixing with Jewish people so that it was very hard to discern whose heart is really with Hashem. It was a very, very dangerous time. And when Rabbi Gamliel, in his base medrash, asked, who was able to institute the blessing for the heretics? 
Remember, this is the time of Rabban Gamliel. So there were very many great sages at that time. And it seemed like you needed to be a special person in order to write this prayer. And you know who qualified? Shmuel HaKatan. Shmuel, the small one, the humble one. He was so humble and so pious. It was only somebody of his caliber who had so much love, so much compassion, so much humility, no personal agenda at all. He was qualified to write Birchas HaMinim. Otherwise, people are not qualified. <laughs> Maybe that guy is deserve, deserving of hatred. But how are you going to be the one to hate? The previous Rebbe was once challenged that he shows so much kindness to Jewish people who have left the path and supposedly act against Hashem, about whom the Talmud says, My reading v'lay mylin. You let them fall into a pen and you don't help them out. And so he looked at the people who challenged him and he said, That law that you quote, My reading v'lay mylin, there are four volumes of the code of Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch. This law appears towards the end of the very last volume. When you are perfect at all those other laws in all four volumes, then you might be in a qualified position to decide whether or not that Jew is deserving of hatred. Now, what was the previous Rebbe saying? Was he saying that you have to keep the laws in the order uh, that they're written in the Shulchan Aruch? No. You keep the laws in whichever order, whenever they come up. All the laws of all four sections need to be kept all the time. But what he was saying was that this law about hatred you can only ask yourself, does this guy deserve hatred when you're perfect at everything else? If you're not perfect at anything else, you're not in a position to judge. Does this guy deserve hatred? And there's the story, beautiful story of the Rebbe. I think this was from the 1960s. This man in B'nai Brak was speaking against the Rebbe very disrespectfully. And his own rabbi in Bnei Brak warned him against it and said, you should not be speaking like that against the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He's a big tzaddik. But the man ignored him and he continued to say poisonous statements about the Rebbe. Now, within a short time, his son started to leave Judaism. And after a while, he was so far away that he lost all ties with his family. And the family was heartbroken. They tried to have people speak to him and bring him back. But to no avail, he wouldn't come back. And that was it. Now, one day, this young man is walking through Tel Aviv and a Chabad Chassid sees him and says, hey, you want to put on tefillin? And he said, oh, no, thank you. And he said, come on, put on tefillin. He said, no, he doesn't want to put on tefillin. And so the Chassid looked at him with such earnestness and he said, please, I'm asking you for a personal favor. I really am in pain if you're not going to put on tefillin. Could you put on tefillin? And he had a good heart and he said, I don't want to do the mitzvah, but I want to do you a favor. It's going to make you feel better. I'll put tefillin on for you. So he starts putting tefillin on and the chassid notices that he's not like the other people who doesn't know where to put it and what prayer to say. He's doing a fantastic job. It looks like he's a pro. He does it every day. And he realized he must come from a religious family. And they kept up a connection and he showed him a lot of love. And before you know it, the boy was back on track. He became religious again. He was close to his family. And his parents were so grateful that his father wanted to travel to the Rebbe to say thank you and to apologize for the disrespect. So this was a time when he was still able to have a private audience with the Rebbe in his office. And he told the Rebbe the story that this son who went off the way, he was brought back by a chassid of the Rebbe because the Rebbe charged his chassidim to go out and put tefillin on people who were not putting on tefillin. And the Rebbe turned to this man and he said like this. He said, see how much it hurt you when your beloved son went off the right path, and this is how it should be, 
This is a father's love for his son. When Hashem helped and your son returned to his roots, you were happy, as a father should be, when his son returns to the proper way. You should know that every Jew in the world who isn't on the correct path yet causes a hurt in me, as a father hurts for his son. And when he returns to Hashem, I feel satisfaction, as if my own son had returned. So this is true love for each and every fellow Jew, even the ones that seem to be far, nobody's far. We're all very close, we're all close to Hashem, and we're close to each other. And our closeness to each other brings each other in. And even somebody who seems like they're deserving of hatred, they're deserving of love, and they're deserving of compassion. And even somebody who seemingly doesn't even deserve compassion, at the end of the day, until we're perfect, we're not qualified for that. All we can do is draw one another in and be there for each other and help each other. And hopefully we all bring out the best in each other. So let's sum it up and say there's three types of sinners. One is the regular sinner. There's no mitzvah to hate him. And not only is there no mitzvah to hate him, there's a mitzvah to show him extra love, to draw him in closer so that hopefully he will come closer to Hashem. Then there is a sinner who is a Torah scholar, who is practicing mitzvahs, who is your colleague, whom you've rebuked. He chooses to follow the negative path. He's somebody who there's a mitzvah to hate. But this person whom there's a mitzvah to hate, there's a mitzvah to love him too. And the way you're going to act to him as a person and the final decider of things is with love because you're going to have compassion on him You're going to see the evil within him and you're seeing that it's dominating his goodness that will make you feel bad for him and it's going to elicit the love that you have within him. And then there's this group of people called Minim and Apikorsim. And they are the people who David HaMelech said about them, Tachlis Sina Sinesim. I hate them with a consummate hatred. The reason why they're hated with a consummate hatred is because they overtly deny Hashem. They overtly shut off their connection with him. It's as if they have no signal. And so it seems like impossible to love them. So these people are deserving of consummate hatred. Do these people exist today? Is there anybody who is really a min and apikairis? Probably not. And even if there is, they still need to be drawn in and hopefully they can get in touch with their soul again. So these are the three kinds of sinners. Now, one more thing. The Tzemach Sedek, again, this is the grandson of the Bahatania, the third Chabad Rebbe said, that David HaMelech, when he wrote in Tehillim, Tachlis Sinas Hanesim, I hate them with a the consummate hatred. At that point in his life, he was a tzaddik gamor. That means that he had eradicated all evil within himself. He said only somebody of a caliber of a tzaddik gamor can actually hate. But even somebody who's a tzaddik, we're not talking about a benoni, we're talking about a tzaddik. Even somebody who's a tzaddik but not a tzaddik gamor he is not qualified to hate because you have to remember there can't even be the smallest vestige of personal interest in the hatred. And that would be basically impossible for most human beings alive today. So, so let's sum up this chapter. And this chapter is the Avas Yisrael chapter. This Avas Yisrael chapter comes in the middle of this section all about joy. The Alter Rebbe is teaching us that we need to have joy because joy is what it takes to serve Hashem. And step after step till we've come through chapter 31 where he explained that when you identify with your divine soul and you're constantly taking joy in the, soul, in the joy of the soul, 
now you're in a perfect space to love every single Jew just like you love yourself. Because if you're a person who's a body person, if you're a person who's an ego person, then it's going to be difficult. It's going to be impossible. You're not going to be able to love another person like you love yourself. But if you're a soul person, of course you can love another person like yourself. They are yourself. It's just like loving yourself. So that's where it came into from the previous chapters. It's about joy and joy allows you to have true love. Now, once we're looking at love, then we start to get into the particulars. Well, there's somebody you might need to hate. Okay, even him, this Torah scholar, this mitzvah practicer, your colleague who you rebuked, he may need some hatred, but guess what? You still have to love him. So that's one guy. And then you're gonna say, okay, so how am I gonna act him if I need to love him? Well, you're gonna have compassion on him. And then what about the minim and apikorsim, those people who cut off all ties with Hashem? Well, about those people, King David said, I hate them with a consummate hatred. So yes, they are deserving of consummate hatred. But the question then becomes, are we qualified for consummate hatred? And I could say hands down, there's basically nobody on this planet that's, that's qualified for uh, consummate hatred. So the best way to go is with love. And now I'm opening up for questions and discussion.